Well, let's open our scriptures again, please, to John chapter 15. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, when he was preaching on Jesus Christ, which was every sermon, basically, uh, once said uh, in quite an impassioned tone of voice, let every name perish except the name of Jesus Christ. Well, he'd be pleased to hear tonight that my name seems to have perished here. But uh, (laughs) praise God that Christ remains. Well, I want to ask... At the very outset, and I'm going to answer four of the, I've answered, asked five questions, I'm going to answer four of them very quickly, and then we're going to deal with question number five from this passage. First question, what are we here for? What is the purpose of our existence? Why did God create us to begin with, and then why did God save us? And the answer is to glorify himself. He saved us, he created us first, subsequently saved us to declare and to demonstrate, to display to those around us his magnificence, his splendor, his awesomeness, to use that word in the appropriate technical sense. That's the purpose of your redeemed life, that you may display, that you may show forth how glorious God is. Second question, how do we do that? How do we glorify him? How do we display how magnificent he is to our fellow human beings? Answer verse 8 of John 15, by bearing fruit. Jesus said, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. We glorify God by living fruitful lives. Thirdly, what is this fruit? The bearing of which by us glorifies God. What does a fruitful, God-glorifying life look like in practical terms? Answer? Well, many things. But it's a life in, in part which mirrors and imitates the life Jesus Christ lived here upon the earth. We glorify God in the eyes of others. We demonstrate how magnificent he is when we live like his son, who is the exact representation of his being. And that life is the life the Apostle Paul painted uh, for us in Galatians chapter 5, a life which radiates love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That is the life Jesus lived here upon the earth. Somebody has said the fruit of the Spirit then in Galatians 5 is a pen portrait of Jesus Christ. And that's the life God has redeemed us to live. Sadly for time's sake, I haven't got time to go in tonight to uh, what all those mean exactly. But suffice to say for now, when we live like this, this life, when those characteristics reflect us, or we reflect them, others see the beauty of Jesus in us, and prayerfully will be drawn to love, serve, and worship the one we reflect. The fruit we are to bear, the fruit which glorifies God, is in essence a Christ-like life. Fourth question, how much fruit does God want us to bear? How much like Jesus does he want us to be? 
The answer, as much as is possible in this life. He wants us to be abundantly fruitful. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And he says, actually, so you will be, literally, so you will prove you are my disciples. These things we're talking about, this Christ-like life, these are the marks of conversion. These are the proofs that a new birth has taken place within us. So we're here to glorify God. We do that by living a fruitful life. That life is a Christ-like life. We're to live as much of a Christ-like life as we possibly can. Fifthly, and here's where we're going to stay on for a little while, what is required for us to reach this point of maximum fruitfulness? What is necessary if we are going to bear not just some fruit, if we're going to reflect Christ not just in some way, but in many ways? And Jesus says here in John 15, if we want to know how to reach maximum fruitfulness as the disciples of Jesus Christ, we can do no better than to look at the process by which the branches attached to a grapevine reach the point of maximum fruitfulness. And Jesus says, if these branches are to bear fruit in abundance, two things are required. Firstly, in verses 2 and 3, those branches must be pruned by the vine dresser. And then, verses 4 and 5, they must abide in the vine. If grape, grapes are going to be born in abundance, the branches must be pruned by the vine dresser, they must abide in the vine. And if we are to bear fruit in abundance for God, if we're going to have a maximum Christ-like life, the same two things are required of us. We must be pruned by the heavenly vine dresser, God the Father. And we must abide in the true vine, God the Son. The pruning is God's work. The abiding is our work. There is something for God to do, and there is something for us to do. Admittedly, the part we have to play, we can only play as the Spirit makes us willing and able. But we have to do it. Bearing fruit in the Christian life is what you might call a synergistic work. It's done by two parties in tandem. God and us. It takes two to tango, we say, and that is true of our sanctification. It's not all God and it's not all us. It's both and. God working and us working as God works in us. It's a partnership. God works, we work. He prunes, we abide. We work together with him in this. We cooperate with our creator in this grand venture, which is sanctification ever-increasing fruitfulness and ever-more Christ-like life doesn't just happen. Two things have to be in play. Two things have to be in work, at, at work. Two parties have to be active for this to happen. And I want us to look uh, tonight at the work that God does to produce this Christ-like life in us, this work of pruning. What does God do? to bring out the life of Jesus in us more and more. Quite simply, he prunes us. 
Now, I can't overstate just how important grapes were in Jesus' day to people living in what we would now call the Middle East. They were a vital part of people's diets in that region and had been for many centuries. People ate grapes, people drank wine made from grapes, and one of the worst things that could happen in the life of a nation was for there to be a shortage of grapes. Do you remember when uh, Habakkuk is told by God that the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to lay waste to the land and they're going to take the people into captivity as God chastises them for their sin in order to bring them back later? Uh, And one of the things Habakkuk sees that horrifies him, that the Babylonians are going to do, by the time they finish with them, there will be no fruit on the vines. That was a dreadful thing because grapes were essential to well-being in the life of people in that day. It was essential then that people did everything they could to secure a plentiful supply of grapes year on year. And to do that, they would plant in the soil a tremendous number of grapevines. Not just a few here and there, but they would plant as many as they could wherever they could. And if you had been walking around Palestine at that time, that was one of the most noticeable features of the land, the sheer number of grapevines in existence. But that wasn't all. Yes, they would plant a lot of grapevines, but after they planted them, they invested a great deal of time, energy, effort and skill in cultivating those grapevines to ensure, firstly, that they did bear fruit, And then secondly, that they bore much fruit. And so men were employed, it was their living, to look after grapevines. Vine dressers um, were plentiful in the land. They were paid to take care of these vines. They were paid to nurture them so they were as productive as possible. And they were accountable to their employer for each vine's grape-bearing yield. What was involved in taking care of a grapevine? What would a vine dresser have to do? Well, he would water and fertilize the grapevine, but he would at regular intervals examine the vine. He would study each branch attached to the vine in considerable detail. If he found a branch that was sadly not bearing any fruit at all, was not drawing sap from the vine, he would remove it from the vine and burn it because it was of no use to him. And Jesus speaks about that in verse 6. If he found a branch that was bearing fruit, if he found a branch that had shoots or even fully formed grapes on it, he would be pleased. That would encourage him. What would he do then? Leave it as it was? No, Jesus tells us he would prune it. He would trim the branch, cutting away some of the growth he discovered on it. Why would he do that, you ask? Surely he would want to encourage the growth of these new shoots on the branch. So they would bring grapes, and in the end you'll have lots of grapes growing from lots of shoots on lots of branches. But no, the more shoots there were on a branch, drawing the life-giving sap from the vine, the more thinly spread that sap would be and the less each shoot would receive. And the less each shoot received, the poorer the quality 
of the fruit it would bear. You didn't want too many shoots on the branch, thinning out the sap, if you like. It would compromise the quality of the fruit and the overall fruitfulness of the branch. The vine dresser wants to concentrate the sap that is flowing into the branch from the vine in a small number of shoots because he wants high quality as well as large number in that sense, grapes. And so the vine dresser did something with every branch on the vine. Nothing was left alone. Nothing was overlooked. If a branch wasn't bearing fruit, he cut it off. If it was bearing fruit, he cut it back so it would bear more fruit. Are you bearing fruit for God? Not in church attendance or Bible knowledge, but in these graces of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, gentleness. We're not looking for perfection. God isn't looking for perfection. Sanctification is a progressive work. But are these things in evidence in your life in any way? Are you longing that they would be in greater evidence? Is there fruit? Do you resemble Christ in any way? If you're not, if you don't, if you're a fruitless branch, Jesus has a solemn warning for you. For now, he has left you seemingly in the vine. For now, you are part of the Christian community. But there'll come a day where God will cut you out. There'll come a day when God will remove you. And the fire, hell, will be your lot. Are you bearing fruit for God? Does your life resemble Christ in any way? If you are to some degree a fruitful branch, that's good news, but remember this, God won't leave you alone. God will prune you because he wants you to bear even more fruit than you already are. That's his goal, that's his ambition, that's his desire for you, that he wants you to be even more Christ-like than you are now. And that can only happen through pruning. Greater fruitfulness, increased Christ-likeness is impossible without pruning. Pruning involves cutting, and cutting is painful. If the vine could feel, branch could feel pain, it certainly would when it was pruned or trimmed. Pruning is painful. Jesus deliberately used this metaphor, warning us, making it clear, not hiding it from us, that if we really want Christ-likeness, if we really desire spiritual fruitfulness, there'll be great pain. It's not enjoyable, but it's necessary. And the pruning shears which God uses to make his people more and more fruitful, to cut away those things that are unhelpful, to bring forth those things that are beautiful, God's pruning shears, as you would expect, have two blades. And both blades cause pain to those they come into contact with. The first blade on God's pruning shears is suffering. Suffering is part and parcel of life in general. We live in a fallen world. It's inevitable. 
But suffering is also a part and parcel of Christian living. It's not that we suffer before we're a Christian, and when we become a Christian, suffering disappears. You may have been told that somewhere, and you wouldn't have been told it here, I know, but you may have heard that somewhere. It's not true. Suffering comes with you into the Christian life. And it's not that God would like to remove it now, but he can't. Suffering is one of the tools God uses to develop and mature us. It's one of the blades on his pruning shears. They say, don't they, no pain, no gain. And it is true. How do painful experiences and difficult situations produce spiritual fruit in our lives? Well, let's get very practical. Let's take patience, for example. Patience. Patience with people we're talking about here. Not, you know, the the ability to wait an hour for a train that should have come ten minutes ago. That's a spiritual grace as well. But we're talking about patience with people. How does God develop that in us? Well, he doesn't develop it in us while we sleep. So we go to bed a rather impatient sort of person, and if if people don't match up to our expectations or they don't treat us as we feel they should, we get very angry, and then we go to bed, and the next morning, we've got an entirely different outlook on everything. And we're not irritable, and we're not uh, short-tempered any longer. God doesn't do it like that. You know what he might do to cultivate this spiritual fruit of patience in our life? He might bring someone into our life who we find very difficult to handle. Someone who's very different to us in the way they think and act. Someone who says and does things which irritate us. People we are prone to be short-tempered with and angry towards. And when we come across someone like that, we may cry in desperation to God, Lord, why have you brought her to live next door to me? Why have you brought him to work alongside me in the office? Why have you brought her into my family? Why have you brought him into the church in which I worship? And Lord, why into the very row in which I sit? And the response may very well come to teach you how to bear with others. Because the only way to develop patience is to have to exercise patience. You learn long-suffering by suffering long with somebody Or think about these Christ-like qualities of gentleness and kindness. How does God produce them and develop them in our hearts? Again, as we sleep, or it just comes, you know, we went to the office one day, and just while we were eating lunch, all of a sudden we felt so different. And we felt very gentle with somebody that we were rather hard with before. Well, no. Think of a a man I was told about. Uh, He'd been very hard with people who were in need. He was a rather hard-hearted person. And if they were ill, or they were dealing with problems in the family, he wouldn't really feel any inclination whatsoever to help. And his attitude would be, well, they just have to get on with it. And then guess what happened? He found himself in great need. He encountered a major crisis in his life. And do you know what the person who'd been telling me about this man said? You won't believe it. He's so different now. He's much more gentle and kind towards people. And when they are in need, he's the first one to help. How did that come about? Through suffering. Through God humbling him. Through God bringing him into great need. The reality is that man needed to feel pain before he could learn gentleness. 
He needed to suffer before he could really show kindness to others who suffer and become like his saviour. Listen to these words from one writer, striking words. Suppose you eliminated suffering. What a dreadful place the world would be. Now think on that one. We'd say, what a glorious place the world would be. And it will be one day. Uh, the new heavens, the new earth will be wonderful because there's no suffering. But now, while we are still sinners, now, while we are still so unchristlike, if you eliminated suffering, what a dreadful place the world would be. No, says this writer, I would almost rather eliminate happiness. The world would be the most ghastly place because everything that corrects the tendency of this unspeakable little creature, man, to feel over-important would disappear. He's bad enough now, but he would be absolutely intolerable if he never suffered. Do you ever ask the Lord to make you more fruitful? to make you more like your saviour? Has that ever been your cry in a prayer meeting or in your own private time? Do you ever pray for spiritual growth? John Newton did that. I asked the Lord that I might grow, grow to be more like Jesus. And he said, everything seemed to go off the rails. And great suffering came into my life and great pain. And I said, Lord, what on earth is going on? I asked you to grow and you're destroying me. You're killing me. And the Lord answers, this is the way I answer the kind of prayer you just asked. Through this, you grow. In the Christian life, there will be suffering but the, at God's design. But the encouragement of verses like we have here in John 15 is that they are, it is pain with a purpose. They are what we might call growing pains. Painful but productive Perhaps you're tempted to be angry with God when you suffer. Remember, he only allows this because it is conducive to your fruitfulness. He's like a surgeon. When you go in for an operation, let's not forget the surgeon cuts you. The surgeon causes you pain. You wake up and you're in pain, aren't you? And they, they have to give you, well, put you under anaesthetic to start with, and then pain relief after to deal with the pain. Who has caused that pain? The surgeon. But he's done it for a good reason. He's done it to heal. Now, none of us would argue with the surgeon doing that. We say, well, it's necessary. Christ is the great surgeon, cutting his people, allowing pain to come into our path to heal us. Not to punish, not to torture, but to heal, to make us more like our son, our saviour. Listen to these words from a hymn. My times are in thy hand, Whatever they may be, pleasing or painful, dark or bright, as best may seem to thee. My times are in thy hand, why should I doubt or fear? A father's hand will never cause his child a needless tear. Wow. The hymn writer doesn't say, a father's hand will never cause his child a tear. God may do things in our life that make us cry. Cry in pain. Cry in sorrow. Cry in anguish. But never without a glorious purpose and his presence to bear us up in it. Johnny Erickson Tarder. Remember, uh, she 
dived into water that was nowhere near as deep as she thought and was paralysed from, I think, is it the neck down? Uh, and she struggled with that. And she says, why doesn't God heal me? And then she looks back later and she says, writes these words. She says, God could have healed me, but he did a greater miracle. He left me in a wheelchair and put a smile on my face. A greater miracle. He made me like Christ with that. He brought a Christ-like life out of my suffering in my wheelchair. And how many people have seen the glory of God in that broken woman in a wheelchair. There's the first blade in God's pruning shears that God uses to cut us, to make us more fruitful and more Christ-like. It's suffering. The second and final one also begins with S. It's Scripture. God prunes us through suffering. He prunes us through Scripture. Verse 3, you are, he says to his disciples, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. You say, oh, just, where does suffering, a scripture, sorry, pruning us come out of that verse? Well, verse 3 follows on directly from verse 2. And you see, in verse 2, Jesus speaks about God pruning the branches to bear for, bring forth more fruit. Then in verse 3, the word translated clean could be translated pruned. He says to his disciples, every branch that bears fruit, God prunes, that it may uh, bear more fruit, you are already clean, you have already been pruned, you have already been purged and purified. This work is underway in you because of the word which I have spoken to you. Jesus said, through my ministry, through my teaching, the Father has been cutting you. The Father has been cleansing and purging you. Through suffering, he cultivates in us things that should be there, like patience and gentleness. Through scripture, he may remove things that should not be there, things which stunt our spiritual growth, things that prevent us from growing in abundance, things that hinder us from becoming more like Christ, attitudes. God cuts out from our hearts attitudes which are unchristlike through his word. Things like pride, Bitterness, self-righteousness, and selfishness. What happens? We read God's word, or we hear God's word preached by his spirit. I never had this experience. God puts his finger on a word we spoke, or a thought that passed to our mind, and we feel the weight of that. What's happening? God is highlighting sin in our lives. God is turning the spotlight on these unhelpful attitudes. And you say about the preacher, how many times have I heard it? How does he know me? He doesn't. But the real one who is preaching, the Holy Spirit does. And he's, he's used the preacher, and the preacher doesn't know it, to pick out things in our life. The writer to the Hebrew says, truly the word of God is living and powerful. Watch out when you come to hear the word preached, because when it's preached in the power of the Spirit, it's dynamite and it can hurt. The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, or it gets right in to places you thought were hidden, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. 
Oh, yes, we can put on a good show outside, but God's word lays us bare deep within when we least expect it. And God cuts us. Oh, it's, it hurts, doesn't it? When God highlights an unchristlike attitude or mindset in us, it hurts. But that's God cutting us to heal us. That's God highlighting it. Not so we may be in great guilt and despair, so that we can come to him and say, Lord, I'm sorry you've shown me, Lord, my sin, my unchristlikeness. Lord, I want to be fruitful for you, and this is not right. Please forgive me for Christ's sake, and please, by your Spirit, change my heart. In Ephesians, we read about God's purifying his church by the washing of water through the word. And J.C. Ryle said, God's word is God's grand means of converting and sanctifying souls. The word of God can be a painful thing to listen to. I, you have to be very wary, don't you, Sunday's meeting. I go to church on a Sunday because I want an uplifting message to get me through the week that's coming. I've got a difficult week coming. I want an uplifting message. Sometimes the very thing God wants to say to you, the most important thing you need to hear, is actually a rather shattering message to take you into the depths, maybe, as we were thinking this morning, so that God can raise us up by his grace. Oh, God prunes. Jesus doesn't hide that from us. This isn't my opinion. This is Jesus' authoritative proclamation here in John 15. God prunes. He prunes through suffering. He prunes through scripture. And his pruning hurts. But it also helps. It transforms us into beautiful people. Oh, we may not look like something that will appear on the front of a, a magazine cover. But it produces beautiful, attractive people. People like Jesus, people who carry the savour of Jesus, who have the, the spirit of Jesus, people of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What our society needs, people like this. And God produces people like this in his church through pruning. Before we finish, here's an important point. Because pruning the branches involved cutting, you could do a great deal of harm to the vine and the branches if you went at it without knowing what you were doing. And instead of making the vine more fruitful, you could actually destroy it altogether. And so those who wish to work as vine dressers would have to first undergo a period of training for the work, which could last up to three years. They'd learn where to cut, how much to cut, when to cut, at what angle to cut. And not until they had completed their training course and demonstrated the appropriate amount of knowledge and skill in the art of pruning could they ever hope to find employment in a reputable vineyard because you needed somebody who knew what they were doing. I think of my wife who pruned some roses in the garden. Well, pruned, or should I say hacked, uh, at some roses in the garden. Thankfully, they still seem to be alive, but uh, that may be more by God's providence than human design. But we can hack at things, can't we? We can do that in situations. We can, we can want to help, and what we do is make a, a hash of it by hacking at it. How comforting it is to know that the one who has assumed responsibility for pruning us, our Heavenly Father, is only wise. 
He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows where to cut. He knows what to cut. He knows when to cut. He knows at which angle to cut. He knows just how much is necessary. He knows just how much pain is required to make it productive. Never too much, never too little. God will cut you if you're a Christian, but God won't kill you. God won't destroy you. He'll only make you more fruitful, more like his son. Someone has said, the great husbandman, vine dresser, knows how and where to bring his knife to bear, both in the life of an individual and in the corporate life of a local church. The one who's taken responsibility for cutting you cares for you and loves you enough to send his son to be a curse for you that you might be his child. You have a compassionate vine dresser. You have a skillful vine dresser. You have an effective vine dresser. In the parable of the sower, Jesus said Christians will bear differing amounts of fruit. Some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. And every follower of Christ will bear fruit. But the degree of fruitfulness varies from believer to believer. Why? In part, it's how much pruning has gone on through suffering and through scripture. Those who bear fruit a hundredfold have undergone much pruning. They've suffered. They've been chastened by scripture, but it's reaped a rich harvest in their life. They overflow with the fruit of the spirit, with the life of Jesus. Those who bear fruit 30-fold have undergone but little pruning. They've suffered little. They've been chastened little by Scripture. And it's brought about a relatively meager harvest in their life. The fruit of the Spirit is evident, but not to the extent that it might be. So here's the question to finish. Why have some Christians undergone a great deal of pruning and borne much fruit as a consequence? Some undergone but little pruning. It's been quite an easy life, really. Quite a sail through, but a born little fruit. Here's the answer. Some submitted to God's pruning. Others resisted. We know God is a sovereign God, but also we said he works in cooperation with us, or we work in cooperation with him in this work of sanctification. And some have said to God, I refuse to suffer in order to be fruitful. Some have turned a deaf ear to the chastening voice of Scripture. And God has said, and it's God's authority and decision, but God has said, okay, I leave you. I won't do a great deal of cutting in this life. I won't bring my shears to bear to a great extent on you. And we think, oh, great. Great, not much pruning, not much cutting, little suffering, little conviction from Scripture. Great, an easier life but a less fruitful life, a less Christ-like life, a poorer, shallower life that doesn't know the blessing of God it could have. James urges in his letter, let faith have its perfect work. Let God prune. The psalmist says, blessed is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your Lord. Are you teachable? before God this evening. Throughout history, 
those who have borne the greatest fruit and brought God the greatest glory, and we look at them, all oh, the great heroes, you know, of Hebrews 11, and oh, people, you know, we have church history lectures on, wonderful. You look at virtually every one of them. Boy, they suffered. Boy, God humbled them through his word. Boy, they went through great pruning. They were the subject of his pruning, she is, but what a life came out of it. If you seek to escape God's pruning, she is, he may allow you to do so. But you limit your fruitfulness. Your life will not bring forth the glory to God it could have. And you will fail to really fulfill the purpose of your existence. I close with these words from Bruce Milne. Pain produces is one of the primary laws of spiritual growth. It is a commonplace, both of horticulture and of Christian experience, that the harder the pruning the greater the fragrance and beauty which will later be released. Our heavenly Father is hungry for fruit from his vine, and in order to produce it, will often in his pruning cut deeper than we would ever have chosen. At the harvest, however, both the sower and reaper may be glad together. Trust God. He's got a quite an implement in his hands, a pruning shears with sharp blades. But he knows what he's doing, and he knows what will come of it. Trust your heavenly Father to prune you.